Hello and welcome to the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame podcast. In this series, we're looking at the lives and achievements of significant people from the history of weather and forecasting. I'm Claire Whittam and I'm joined by podcast regulars Jeff Norwood-Brown Hello. and Catherine Ross. Hello. And Jeff, I believe it's your turn today. So who have you brought for us to add to our Hall of Fame? Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about a chap called James Stagg. Um, he was a forecaster or rather... Um, as the story unfolds, you'll find out he was an overseer of forecasters, and uh, he was involved in uh, a particular forecast on uh, June the sixth, nineteen forty-four, which uh, a lot of people will realise is the D-Day invasion of Europe by uh, the Allied troops, and essentially um, he oversaw uh, three groups of forecasting teams. Uh, one of them was uh, the United States Air Force. One was one group was the Met Office, and one group was the Royal Navy. And he had such an extreme job um, uh, <laughs> to oversee. Um, there was all many factors that that, that needed to consider for the uh, for the invasion. Firstly, uh, they were tied down to certain dates during May and June of 1944. And these were uh, related to the uh, moon status, um, whether it would be a full moon, um, and also the tide status, because what was originally intended to happen was the Air Force would come in and do um, a, a bombing run um, and also a fighter run uh, over the north coast of France. And they needed... The, the whole process was was going to start before dawn um, on whichever day they chose. Um, and so they needed a full moon for, for good guidance so they could see the ground and where the troops were. And presumably that meant it couldn't be too cloudy as well. If yeah, they, the full they, moon. They, they, they couldn't have medium-level clouds, they couldn't have low-level clouds, so they couldn't have any stratus or anything like that. Um, and were they and also going to have paratroopers landing early on? They were going to so have paratroopers to landing, well. and the Navy needed to get in so they couldn't have particularly strong winds. So there's an enormous amount of information that, that this... this uh, um, chap needed to collate. So, so I'm we guessing, sorry, Jeff, to interrupt. So I'm guessing with the the tides and the moon, they were things that were quite well established. They were well so established. They're, they're pinning down to quite a small yeah. window of opportunity. So they, they had a few days. They they had a few days in late May. They had June the fifth or June the sixth as an opportunity, or June the eighteenth through to June the twentieth. And I don't know why they didn't choose the May opportunity, but uh, they didn't. And um, they got these groups to do the forecast. And on June the 5th, and I have the charts in front of me right now, unusually for for June um, uh, over Britain, there was a particularly low, uh, deep low pressure. And I think the centre was about 978 hectopascals or millibars, uh, which is is, is a fairly deep low. That's like Uh, what sort of pressures would we normally see? um, Well, normally, I mean, you know, Sort of today, it would be about 1,013, something like that, you know. So this was a particularly... Uh, Bear in mind, this is June. This is, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, so... That's was, sort of winter storm territory, right? It is, is it? yeah. yeah you, okay. You're talking about winter storm, you know. So uh, you, you don't get much much lower than 970 hectopascals. Um, and this was situated off the uh, north coast of Scotland. And, and being the nature of a low-pressure system, it was dragging winds down from the north and northwest. Um, and... These were producing very strong winds up the channel, 
low visibility. There was a cold front involved as well, which was dragging its way right the way down the uh, east coast of uh, England, right the way through the Channel and into northern France. So the cloud was a particular problem. But what um, Stag realised with his group of, uh, uh, of forecasters was that the next day, June the 6th, the low pressure had moved off into the uh, North Sea, off the uh, east coast of Scotland, and the winds had, okay, they'd veered, but, you know, they were now northerly, um, but they were so much lighter. The cold front had gone through, there was no front involved at all, so visibility was much clearer, uh, there was no low cloud, no medium cloud, and so therefore the fighters and the bombers could get in, and obviously with the Navy as well, they could land the troops on the shore. So it was Stag's job to go and speak to a chap called Eisenhower, who was <laughs> fairly <laughs> fundamental. You know. and, 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 and to me, you know, having to speak to the commander of the Allied forces and say, you might want to move this 24 hours, you know, and, and Eisenhower listened to him and said, OK, we'll do that then. Um, and it was only because of Stag's overview of these three groups who just happened to agree on this one forecast that D-Day was moved to the 6th of June, 1944. So and these three groups were producing different forecasts? Well, they were all trying their best, because okay. you have to remember there was no satellites then. There of course, Very, yeah. very few observations, no supercomputers, anything like that. So they're doing their absolute level best, but they're never going to agree, you know, because... One thing I do know, though, on your, on your charts, is um, you've got a lot of observations there over Germany, um, which, is, which is an interesting point. Um, because obviously, technically, weather observations at war were absolutely secret, weren't they? Mm. You know, we didn't have any forecasts, any public forecasts, all the way through the Second World War, because it was such it was considered such critical information. Um, Is that true? So yeah. no, no public broadcasting of the weather forecast. No, absolutely. For obviously, if we said it's going to be a nice day tomorrow, if the Germany was listening, we oh, good bumming run day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. So people just had to, I guess, resort to old weather law. And and the, the, absolutely. The, yeah. the problem for the Germans was that that at this time we uh, the the Allies still controlled the Atlantic, so we had all the well, we had the majority of forecasts or observations coming in from the Atlantic, which the Germans just didn't have, and. When the Germans did the forecast around this time, they felt that it was so stormy, it was going to be so inclement, that there was no possible uh, chance of an invasion. So a lot of them went on holiday. <laughs> they, they, gave, they gave their troops leave, and the commanders went off on holiday. Uh, and they were just totally unprepared for us to actually invade at that time. But of course, the interesting thing, we, we had all of that extra data because we'd broken the Enigma code. Exactly. So, you know, we were reading all of their observations. Are we observations. allowed to mention that yet? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so we're getting data from Germany, from France, not because we know what's happening, but because we're cracking the German code and then transmitting weather information via the Enigma machine. And we cracked the Enigma code because of a weather forecast. Did we really? Because there were certain German outstations that would, although they had to change the settings on the Enigma every day, they would report weather good here, Heil Hitler. Oh, so the same information. So the same information was coming through, and and through that we realised that actually we can work out what your settings are from that, and that's how we 
uh, well, help towards the weather, breaking of when, the Enigma yeah, code. Because weather observations have such repeating patterns exactly. that we could look for those repeating patterns and then start to work the rest of it out. But if you look at a German chart, which I happen to have seen for the same day, oh, right. you'll find that there's no observation, there's no information over the UK, which just proves that they hadn't cracked our codes. So they had none of that information from, West, the, from us or the Western Atlantic. And in fact, actually, if you look at the, look at the charts themselves, our charts go right out over the mm. Atlantic. There's literally stop at the edge of France. Incredible. So we had the advantage of extra weather information. Absolutely. And it was certainly the fact there was a there was a few boats out in the in, in the North Atlantic that were saying, oh, the pressure's building here on, on June the 5th. Mm-hmm. And they, they relayed that back to the UK that we thought, oh, that ridge will probably move in on the westerlies, on the you know jet stream, as it normally does with the UK, that we thought June the 6th will be the will be the day. So a ridge of high pressure, Jeff, just Give us a bit more detail. Explain to me what that means. Well, uh, a ridge of high pressure is, 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 in meteorological terms, is just uh, better weather, <laughs> if okay, you like. fair enough. That works. <laughs> yeah, so you get an awful lot less cloud. I can go into the physics of it all, but I won't. Um, you get an awful lot less cloud, but, you know, sort of post-cold fronts, very good as well because you get clear skies, good visibility, high pressure, um, and, uh, and a ridge is basically a, a, a line of high pressure. Um, and that sort of gets rid of the cloud, increases the visibility, everything's calmer, there's no winds, that sort of thing. You know, Low pressure tends to be cyclonic in that um, the winds are trying to fill in that low pressure and they spiral around because of the Coriolis effect and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, so a ridge of high pressure is is good for invading France. And so identifying this early was the, the key. And, and that's it, yeah. There was and, of course, they needed more than one good day, didn't they? You know, you get your troops over there, that's fine, but you need several more days in order to kind of put in all the backups. But supplies. it's incredible things you had to consider. They couldn't have had a day. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um but they couldn't have had a day where it had been heavy rain the day before because that would hamper the army's uh, troops going on to land. They didn't want a quagmire to go into. So there were so many things, you know, as I say, the medium cloud, the high-level cloud, the low-level cloud, the visibility, the wind speed, and Stag had to sort of coordinate this. And I have to say, uh, Captain James Stag was 44 when he did all this. So the responsibility was absolutely incredible. And had he come from a meteorological background? Was he a member of the Met Office at the time? Well, he yeah. became. <laughs> Sorry. Catherine. No, I, I, I know he, he was a meteorologist, but you know, he, was, he wasn't sort of senior. He, he wasn't our senior forecaster. That, you know, that, that was all being done up in Dunstable with a whole separate team. So. Oh, OK. So he was sort of a, a member of the he office. He was chosen largely because he was a very good administrator, to the best oh, okay. of my knowledge, so he could pull information together. I think that was the key. You know, he was uh, adept at uh, getting groups to work together. You know, interestingly enough, at one of the other dates, um, I'm going to do ourselves down here uh, between the 18th and the 20th of June, which was the other. Um, uh, these three groups, the US Air Force, the Met Office and the Royal Navy, uh, all predicted really nice weather and the biggest storm <laughs> ever rattled down the English Channel and it would have been a terrible, terrible time to try and invade another country. Um, so it was in its infancy. But, you know, just the the, the courage 
you know, that, that Stag showed was absolutely incredible. What's interesting about that second storm is, is Stag then wrote a memo to Eisenhower describing the weather of that period and kind of why it would have been so bad. Um, and Eisenhower, we, he sent a copy of that back and he wrote a note on the top saying, thanks and thank the gods of war we went when we did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, so there was an element of chance in it. But, you know, the fact that these three groups agreed... You know, it's almost like probabilistic forecasting. You know, it's almost like, you know, ensemble forecasting, you know, which is what we do today. Well, that's it. And we must get a copy of the chart or some of the charts up on the uh, the show notes on the Met Office website. And we'll also try and send them out on the Twitter feed. So have a look at, at MW underscore podcast and we'll try and get some charts out there for you. But they're hand drawn, aren't they? They are hand drawn. They're, they're, they're still showing, you know, the original sort of weather symbols and somebody's had to meticulously draw those on Oh, there. yeah. But, but, but we used to do that. I, I, I joined the Met Office in 2002 and we used to do this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so we, we've talked about ensembles in the main podcast before and how this thing requires loads of computing and things like that. But actually, yeah. The idea was there. Yeah, 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 the idea was there, you know, and, and it works. And you say about the stress he was under. Um, his his diary is held in the in the Met Office archive, actually, along with the originals of the of the charts. Um, and it, it's it kind of talks about it's all becoming a nightmare. I, I just don't know exactly what's going to happen. So it just shows just how difficult the situation mm. was. Yeah. So what happened to him after the D-Day landings? I mean, clearly well, this he, was a key event. <laughs> he became quite significant in the Met Office. Did he? Uh, indeed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Tell us any more about that, Jeff? No, have nothing. <laughs> I mean, I think I saw that he worked here as a director until the 1960s or something, I think. So uh, he obviously carried on his yeah, career. I believe he, he was a senior member of staff in the Met Office, yes. And had, I think, got involved in the, the Royal Meteorological Society and things like that, possibly. But he's, he's one of these chaps that, I mean, I, I started researching him just, you know, just for this podcast. But the more you dig, the more interesting it becomes. If anybody wants to look up James Stagg on uh, Wikipedia or Google or anything like that, he's an absolutely fascinating character. And the amount of pressure he was under is incredible. Yeah, and as you say, he must have been a very good man manager so mm, to do that. Absolutely, yeah. So people have referred to this as the most important weather forecast in history. How, how do we see that? Yes, no? I, I think it, it, I know it's referred to as that. I can certainly see the point. I mean, if, if we hadn't invaded on that day, especially knowing what happened on the 18th to 21st, mm. you know, it would have changed the outcome of the war. Um, which would then have changed the outcome of, of you know, the balance of power in Europe. So, yes, I can see it's, it's arguable, certainly. Wow, fascinating. James Stagg, the person that put forward the D-Day landings weather forecast. What a great, great episode. Thank you both for joining me today. And we'll wrap up. Um, do stay tuned for the next uh, Mostly Weather Hall of Fame podcast. As I said before, you can find more information and hopefully copies of the charts on the Met Office website with the show notes and do check out our podcast uh, Twitter feed at MW underscore podcast where we'll also try and get some information up there thanks for joining me both of you thank you thank you and we will see you all again at the next podcast thank you